Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right, and you'll just need to uh, fix that, Brit. Sorry about that. There you go. All right, so here we are, another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. Uh, Brit Hartley, how are you doing? I'm so good, Bill. How are you? Good, good. This live show stuff, sometimes there's a little glitch here or there, but uh, hey, it whatever. Would, it wouldn't happen <laughs> at all if you weren't doing the tech. So, uh, What's new? Anything going on? Uh, no, I am just really excited for our guest day. We were talking a little bit off, off air about the Dalai Lama and that kind of debacle. So what was your, tell me what was your kind of initial response and then after yeah, reading was, more, kind of where you <clears> landed <throat> with that. Yep. So, and I'd love to to get Caroline's uh, thoughts here at some point in the show as well. But uh, um, I, obviously, the event. So, folks need to who haven't seen it. The Dalai Lama is um, at something, and this young kid walks up. And I'm going to guess the kid was nine years old, ten years old, somewhere around there. And the Dalai Lama proceeds to kiss him on the lips and then stick his tongue out. And he ended up apologizing. But what was supposedly asked was, "Will you suck my tongue or suck my tongue?" And at first I was deeply bothered and still am, but I was deeply bothered for the thought that the Dalai Lama was trying to do something inappropriate. Now, since then, the explanation has come out that within Buddhism, there is this idea that you you take the candy from the master's mouth and or the friend's mouth or whatever it is. And then the suck my tongue is I don't have any candy left. Go suck my tongue. Mm-hmm. Here's what I would say, though it doesn't matter what cultures make things okay, right? Like in our faith, we came from, there's this idea that the past excuses things because in the past uh, people married young ages. And so a a grown man at 40 years old, marrying a a 15 year old kid is perfectly okay. Cause in the 18, or it's part of our culture that men are with children behind closed doors because they have the priesthood. It's part of our culture. And what I would say is that if we're going to go with our gut feeling about what is healthy and unhealthy, responsible and irresponsible, we ought to never have any space be safe where a grown man can to a kid who is a complete stranger to him. It's not his kid. Um, and I think even beyond your beyond your own children, you ought, you know, the, the space is probably unhealthy for anybody. You could, shouldn't probably kiss your niece or nephew this way. And so no matter what the culture makes okay, or what the past used to be all right, I don't think we should ever make a space safe where a nine-year-old boy, 10-year-old boy has physical, intimate contact with a grown adult stranger. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so explaining it away by saying like, oh, we do this all the time. This is what it means. Yeah. Still doesn't fix it for me. I think it was interesting to see the response because like most things in the, you know, inflammatory things, there's like two really strong responses. And one strong response was, this is a cultural thing. This is a nothing burger, right? It's nothing. And then the other response that I specifically saw with like women groups that I'm a part of that have been touched by patriarchy, um, you know, it was this like, 
this is proof that he is a pedophile, right? Like it was just proof he's, he needs to be dethroned and this is pedophile behavior. And, and it seems like there, there should be some degrees in between nothing burger and full on proof that he is an active pedophile. <laughs> like there has yeah, to be yeah. somewhere in between those two spaces that we can talk about, but that was it, kind of the seems, response I saw. It seems like, we could acknowledge that he was doing something that was socially acceptable in his, in what he's learned, the Dalai Lama, what he's learned is appropriate behavior, not appropriate, right? Like he was making an innocent mistake of doing something that's always been done. Yeah. And maybe it's a good moment to also say, maybe this is also signaling to us that we ought to have a deeper conversation as, as it generally, or as a society as a whole, or maybe within Buddhism, that these kinds of interactions, no matter what past mm -hmm. acceptance they had, is probably inappropriate. Yeah, I mean, even before the tongue, just like lifting up the chin to kiss was like already a little cringy. But yeah. Yep. anyway, I'd love to bring in our guest today. We can maybe ask her what she thought about this before we go into her story. So I want to introduce everyone to Caroline Devon. Hi. Hi. <laughs> and so you, you can you right find... We got you yeah, right go in the furnace to begin with. So yeah. yes, what, do you, what do you think about this whole Dalai Lama thing? That's complicated. So um, right now I'm in a, um, a PhD program for cultural anthropology. And one of the big values in that system is cultural relativism. And is it possible to relativize this away into a non-issue? Maybe, maybe not. The thing is, Dalai Lama has um, a lot of significance to people across uh, cultural barriers, across country lines. Um, I don't feel like I have a personal stake or too much reaction because I I, I don't know if in, um, you know, I was raised Presbyterian. I didn't really have much of a relationship with the Pope. He didn't signify a lot to me. And kind of similarly, I didn't feel like I had that kind of relationship where he signified, where the Dalai Lama signified something to me when I was a Zen Buddhist. Um, but I, I love what you said, Brett, about trying to find some sort of middle ground between condemnation as a pedophile and this is nothing like let it go. Yeah, yeah I think I that's it. where I kind of ended up. So um, I found you on TikTok and you if you um, are on TikTok, I really encourage you to look up Life After Zen, which is your TikTok handle. And I was listening to your story. And I just had to have you on the podcast to hear your story for a couple reasons. So for one, there's going to be some things in your story that are going to relate to people in this audience who experienced patriarchy, experienced some level of coercion or brainwashing, sexual abuse even. Um, and so there's going to be a lot of overlap between your with your experience um, as a Zen Buddhist and then experiences of, of women who are deconstructing religion. And then there's also going to be some really interesting differences in just kind of your unique experience, because there is this kind of, and we were talking off air, there is this kind of myth that sometimes post-Christians or post-Mormons have that, oh, this doesn't happen in Buddhism, because we kind of only know secular American Buddhism. And um, so that's just going to be really interesting to flesh out. So my first question is just how you came to find yourself in a Zen center, especially after being raised Presbyterian, and just kind of start us off with your story. 
Sure, thanks. Thank you for asking. So um, I uh, grew up going to Christian school and it was a requirement in my household to go to church every Sunday. Um, didn't matter which church, just had to be a church. Um, and I think the kind of structure of showing up, I think, was useful to me as, an, as I grew up. Um, but when it came time for me to be confirmed as a, as a teenager, I really felt a lot of resistance to that. It felt coercive. It felt like there were um, kind of truth claims that should be readily available that I didn't feel available to myself. And I remember writing in my journal back when I was 13 that if there is a God, I want to be able to find God myself and not have someone tell me. Um, Those are big 13-year-old thoughts. And, and in, our, in our faith tradition, we have our, our story starts on a young boy trying to figure out answers directly from God. So anyway. Wow. Response. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think that's a it's a it's an age of such openness and questioning. And it's like you're all of a sudden getting all these developmental tools um, and asking big questions. And so middle school, I ended up finding uh, a book on Buddhism and it resonated with me. And I tried um, meditating in the morning and at night. And that felt to me like uh, kind of brain changing, even as a teenager. There were times where I'd have social anxiety or I'd be frustrated and I would go meditate and I would find that it would kind of come under control. Control is maybe not a right word for it, but it would like smooth out less turbulence. Um, so that was powerful to me such that when I got to college and I had my first big heartbreak, um, someone I fell in love with this man uh, who uh, turned out he was seven years older than me as an 18 year old when he was 25 it felt like a really big deal and now as a 42 year old almost that really creeps me out um but he was uh he was engaged and i did not know that and we were like planning our life together <laughs> but i had this big these big questions how could i be so foolish when this person lied so deeply to me and i think that that ends up being kind of a wedge into uh, bigger existential questions. Um, I think crisis moments can be for a lot of people. And for me, it was a big moment where I thought, well, what can I trust? What is there What is there that's stable? Um, and I found myself calling a Zen center and showing up for sittings and started going to their Sunday Tay show, which is kind of like a Dharma talk sermon kind of situation. Um, every almost every week and at least one sitting during the week, um, which was pretty um, pretty impactful for me as a college student and definitely brought me out of the stream of kind of regular college life. It started to create a little bit of friction there for me. And then you kind of jumped in, like you, so explain yeah. like the jump. Sure, so um, I, you know, hearkening back to that 13 year old, really need deep need to know. Um, I felt that still and was very um, frustrated at feeling like the tools that were available to me were not working. So uh, the academic setting that I was in was very um, challenging and I didn't feel um, like I could get to the answers with enough intellectual tools. It felt like there was some deeper experience of 
human of humanness of reality that I wanted to find with tools that were beyond discursive thought. And something about sitting in meditation, staring at a wall, felt like the the uh, the right antidote to the suffering that I was feeling, feeling churned up. Also, there's like a, a kind of subtext, like subplot, which is that I was di I'm dyslexic, but I was not diagnosed as such. So my college experience was very a lot of struggle, um, and going to a place where the expectations were not. Um, to do academic performance, the expectations were to unlearn um, was was profound to me. And so it really hooked me. And it was a cross-cultural, cross-age community. And there was something also very uh, compelling to me about suddenly having friends um, from Egypt who were 50 and I was uh, 19. So. Okay, and then before we kind of, this story kind of takes a turn, yeah. <laughs> what were just some of the highlights or or things, you know, precious things that you take with you, tools that you take with you before, um, yeah, before this road takes a little bit of a turn? Sure. So um, I, I uh, there, there are actually quite a few years from start until the abusive things started to happen. But um, so I found the Zen Center in 2000, and then I graduated college in 2003. So that gives you a sense. I was 22, um, and then I moved in right away um, as a resident. And uh, actually, I want to rewind a little bit to that first phone conversation I had with the Zen teacher. I I called up the center and I asked, you know, can I come to a Sunday sitting? And he called back and and we started chatting. And very charismatic person. Um, and he was like, oh, you're an English major. I was an English major, you know, connections. And he, I said, I said, you know, I'd really love to. I've just read this book about this woman who became a nun. And one day I'd love to live at a monastery. And uh, he said to me, anyone who wants to live at a monastery without having practiced Zen is running away from something. And I was like, whoa, that's, uh, I think that was, uh, in retrospect, a little bit of a a flag for the kind of tough love, uh, confrontational spiritual growth uh, teaching that that happened at that Zen Center. Um, but three years later, when it looked like there was an opportunity to move in, and I'd been there and had to grind through retreat after retreat, I'd started. Um, getting put into leadership roles during the retreats like head cook to manage the kitchen. Um, and I knew what I was getting into uh, was, you know, the moment that I, I felt like I, I'd like to make a deeper commitment to this, make this the center of my life because there is this opportunity to kind of seek deeply. If, if this is the purpose of my life, why put off the seeking? Why, um, why delay? you know, what, what could be more important? And I think there was a lot of language like that uh, in, I want to say the doctrine, but in the teachings um, that this is the most important thing you can do with your life is to come to clarity, free all beings from suffering <laughs> and other lofty language. Um, but, but I, I don't think I've answered your question yet. You were asking specifically about tools uh, that I found precious things. So, um, the way that, that Zen was explained to me 
was that you have a murky a glass of murky water and when you um try to discern what the nature of that water is you let it be still and let all the sediments settle and that was explained to me as kind of the the technology of zen practice of zen meditation that you sit still um, you still your body you still your mind and in that stillness there's uh, a ripeness for questioning so um i saw that a question came up how is zen different from other um other branches of buddhism so uh kind of three main branches of buddhism there's one called theravadan Mahayana and then Vajrayanan. Um, forgive my voice. <laughs> this is, uh, but Theravadan, um, there's a, a kind of, and it, forgive me, I'm a little rusty since I've stopped being a, a Buddhist priest, but um, it's the Buddhism that you find. There's a, a very strong monastic tradition. Um, it's the Buddhism you, you find mostly in Southeast Asia and India. Um, and uh, the Mahayana practice, um, which is Chan in China, Zen in Japan, Song in Korea, um, is uh, more meditative based. And there are also kind of other kind of branches. Vajrayana is the Tibetan word for like the third or Tibetan um, name for the third turning of the wheel of the Dharma wheel. This is I think the teaching that comes after um, is the way that it's uh, that it's there's a contention there. I don't know if you can hear that um, with, uh, you know, the way that it's practiced. So people um, who practice Vajrayana, the way that it was explained to me is that you have the glass of water, you stir it up and in the stirring, you're discerning what the water is. Um, I think there's a very strong scholarly tradition in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, I think in the United States, the form that we find has has much more meditation. Um, I also think that the ways that these traditions have been exported into the United States, there are, I think, some specific aspects of that, but I can table that for another time. Um, but I think it was very valuable to me to uh, learn that stillness practice. It was quite profound, in fact. Um, and it was it was difficult. It was not simple, uh, even though the act of doing it requires very little. It is a very simple thing to do. Also, on a, on the practical side, living at a Zen center when I was twenty two, um, and getting a job, um, I suddenly had to become very responsible, in a way that college life did not uh, make those kinds of demands for me. And so I, I feel like I did a lot of growing up really fast, um, in a way that. Um, I don't know if it was good or bad, but just one of the aspects of it. Yeah. Just to give you a little background too, we, and maybe Britt relayed this to you. I, I don't know much about Buddhism. What I do know is that I have come from secular Buddhist kind of teachings in the United States. Uh, Jack Cornfield uh, on Audible does like a 12 session conversation with folks and Britt and myself and two other folks did uh, 12 episodes where we covered each one of his sessions, kind of sharing with our audience kind of those tools. But this idea of being present, the idea of kind of managing your feelings and not, you know, you know, the world is the way it is. And yet in our effort to uh, 
hold on to things that are good or to keep things away that are bad. We often have our shadows coming up and, and manipulating the world around us in order to keep ourselves okay, but then doing trauma and harm to the outside world. And so those kinds of tools are the things that we've really spent some time on. And as Britt mentioned, uh, and again, we probably ought to let you get to this part kind of, of the story, but um, we, as, as Mormons, pre, uh, let me say it differently, as uh, post-Mormons, as folks who have deconstructed Mormonism, we are well aware that there is some serious issues of trauma and abuse, unhealthy spaces, lack of respect for healthy boundaries going on in our faith tradition. And we very much thought, at least I've always thought, like Buddhism is this really safe place to go in and learn how to manage your feelings and get some tools. And, and so I'm really deeply interested as we move through the conversation here, because it, I'm also well aware that when people are in positions of power influence, inevitably sooner or later with someone that's going to go bad. Yeah. But I don't really have a question there, but just to give you kind of some background that we've spent some time in Buddhism, we also come from a tradition that has a lot of unhealthiness in terms of boundaries and safe spaces for abuse um, as we move through this conversation. Thank yeah, you. so maybe take us to where this story kind of takes a turn and sure. um, there'll be some areas where for legal reasons, we, you know, we'll keep names out and we will ask you those things, but as much as you feel comfortable. Sure. Um, and thank you for that background, Bill. Um, and I did, I actually listened to um, an episode earlier today. I don't know how to distinguish between, um, and I guess you've distinguished, to, to call it secular Buddhism. The Buddhism that I experienced had a lot of devotional practices in it. And in trying to kind of rehabilitate my devotion to, to Zen practice, after leaving my Zen community, I went to other Zen centers and felt that there was still too much Zen for me. Um, so that I think that specifically uh, Zen has um, some, some aspects of its framework that haven't been maybe married um, to Western psychology in, in ways that potentially a secular Buddhist orientation might have more tools, like you mentioned, working with the shadow. Um, so I, in terms of safe safe spaces, so I, I didn't feel like there was any any kind of depth of working with the shadow in, in my experience. Um, and there were, I, I think there was an expectation of Buddhist practice in the group that I was in, in the lineage, um, which to give you kind of the contours of that, there are like five big Zen centers in the United States and the lineage that I was part of was one of those um, with in, in big and in, you know, it's not anywhere near kind of Christian big. It's like 500 membership, 500 people membership. big. Um, but uh, I apologize. I've a little bit lost my train of thought. Just safety is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we we're just talking about how there's going to be some overlaps here with your story, but if you just wanted to move into how you began to recognize that I think I'm in an unsafe relationship here and how that unfolded. Yes. So I'd been living at the Zen Center for three years. Um, and the thing that started happening where things started to take a wrong turn was uh, when my, I had, I had, for lack of a better way to describe this, advanced in my practice. 
And in retrospect, I think that the teacher found that very validating as to have a student who was young, who was um, kind of walking the path with dedication and devotion and doing it. Um, yeah, uh, doing it well, I guess. And it's weird to say that because I think there's a lot of ways that in Zen language that's inappropriate. <laughs> um, but to try to justify why his behavior started to turn weird was that I think he f started to feel an attachment to me and a um, and a degree of promise to me as like a potential lineage holder that he started to ask me like, do you want to become a priest? Do you want to be ordained? Um, and in our, in our group, that was actually a very serious commitment. That meant living a semi-monastic lifestyle. It was a lifelong, uh, lifelong pledge. And, uh, in, I had said, yes, you know, maybe, you know, maybe in 10 years. Um, and then I'd kind of tabled it, but I'd started to kind of carry that around with me with great concern. What would that mean for the rest of my life? And he, uh, started calling the Zen Center when I was on, we were open six days a week, but on the nights that I was free, he would call to see if I'd pick up the Zen Center's landline. He would like later confess to like feeling the hood of my car to see if I'd left and come back um, before sittings. And so one day he kind of like ambushed me in the early morning after I was coming down from the Zen Center, Zen, the Zendo, which is where we sat meditation. And this was on a, a work day. So there was no reason for him to be in the building because um, he was a teacher who lived off site. Um, and he was like, who is he? Out of nowhere, sitting in the shadows. Who, who, is, who, is, who is he? And I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean? Who is he? He thought that I was having a relationship. Not that that would have been wrong or against any kind of rules, but the um, kind of accusation um, and the attack was out of the blue for me. And um, that kind of kicked off the beginning of his kind of intense scrutiny of me that then grew into a series of um, kind of intensive conversations where he would be asking a lot of very personal things of my life justified under the the heading of this is for your ordination training. This is to make sure that you could be a good priest. Um, and this started to snowball into six hour phone conversations on a daily basis um, into, uh, oh, you drank in college. Um, oh, you smoked pot in high school. Um, that I, there, there are things that are, uh, you know, inappropriate about your value system that I don't think you'll be a good priest um, one day. And so there was always this kind of like baiting with a carrot, like, oh, this this path is not open to you if you say the wrong thing. Um, and there's there's a very, it's a very long and detailed story and I'm trying to be concise with our time limit, but it basically uh, turned into a shame and confession cycle that uh, was closely uh, tied to um, a vetting practice to be a value, to be a, become a priest. And I didn't know since we only had one other priest in our lineage, um, in that, sorry, not in our lineage, lineage had plenty of priests, but at our exact center, um, if this was legit or not. And also this teacher had been a very trusted mentor to me and I'd felt quite, quite close to him, like just spiritually close, very grateful to him. I, I owed him a, a lot of gratitude. 
Um, and uh, that shame and confession kind of cycle turned into um, abusive conversations and um, him, him, basically I said this in the text, like, like raking my soul, <laughs> just for lack of a better word for that. And by the end of the summer, having felt so manipulated and also felt so uh, um, kind of like I'd had my, my personal narrative chopped up and jumbled, um, you know, the, the kind of work we were doing had a lot of like review of my entire lifespan in it, engaged in it. And by the end of it, he convinced me that my parents had been abusive to me when they in fact had not. Um, so it was, it was, I think when you talk about brainwashing, it was a high control situation where I had um, out, kind of out of nowhere, right, a, 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 a right turn out of what was my regular experience. And by the end of the summer, he said, I'm in love with you. And I, I, uh, I was like, okay. Um, but there's also a, an aspect of when someone brings you down so low and kind of grinds you to a pulp and then praises you for the hard work of being ground down to kind of nothing, like conversations where I would be screaming into the phone, I'm, I'm worthless. Um, that at the end of that, I was like, you know, what? this praise feels so good. I think I'm in love with you too. And so that started a closeted relationship um, that was predicated on my subservience and predicated on the coercion and the abuse of that summer. But when I said, I think this is, you know, this is good. This is a good relationship. We should talk to people in the community about it. He said, no, we need to keep this a secret. He had me on every single day, delete every conversation that we had over email. And he sent these page long emails, these rants about how I was a liar, about how I was, you know, a worthless person, um, really abusive and had me burn all the evidence basically. Um, he also had me throw away every, basically everything from my childhood, the material objects that had been meaningful to me. He had me call my best friends and cut ties with them and tell them that they were abusive people. So by the end of that summer, this is 2006, I was in, entirely isolated and he was the only person left standing. And so I, I felt like he threw me overboard and then was the person to offer me a hand back on the ship and then to thank him for his generosity and gratitude for offering me that hand. And so I really did believe um, at that time that he had done good things for me. And so uh, I didn't start to recognize that this had been abusive for some time. It took me three years. Um, so I was then in this closeted, um, very physically abusive relationship with this man who was 30 years older than I was, my Zen teacher, while I was also going to one-on-one uh, -on -one doksan, that's the one-on-one um, -on -one interview with a, with a teacher where they kind of test you on your practice. Um, so he was, uh, I, I, the power dynamic was, was substantial. The power differential, differential was, was, and yes, there is, there was something in the ethics statement of the Zen Center against that and in the lineage as a whole, which is what he knew about and um, kind of got me on board with its, 
you know, we need to keep it secret until everyone will understand. So he did a lot of behind the scenes maneuvering. And during that time, announced that I would become ordained um, to the community before telling me. <laughs> um, so a lot of like power moves to keep me uh, controlled. And um, that kind of ran its course. I became ordained 2000, in 2008, so two, two years later. Um, and I was a very functional kind of leader in the community, which is mind bending when you um, look at the truth claims that are made when it comes to what meditation does for a person. So um, then around uh, 2009, he said, we need to come, come public. Uh, we're going to make up this story. You tell your part of the story. I'll tell my part of the story. And then we'll, um, we'll make this legitimate and we'll run the Zen Center together. We'll turn, I'm going to turn the Zen Center over to these other two men. Then we'll go open a new Zen Center in a different town. And you can support me financially while I'm the teacher. So my life at the time, and uh, yeah, there were also a lot of, you know, behind closed doors, very problematic person um, who may have a narcissistic personality disorder. I don't know. There's no diagnosis, but very difficult person who would regularly um, present a face to me that was uh, 180 degrees different than the face he presented to the community. So uh, you can also feel free to interject at any time because <laughs> I am like on the edge of my seat. Like, like <laughs> you are hitting Bill and I like to watch a lot of cult documentaries So cult. and right. And like yeah. you're hitting on like so many aspects, like it's not yeah. just one aspect, teacher, student. There's like, yeah. there's like 20 aspects of kind of, you know, cult control going on. And yeah. it's like, I'm, I'm heartbroken for you <laughs> as you're telling me this. And like, I can feel it, like, Oh, stick in my stomach. And yeah. the people commenting are saying, Oh gosh, I hate this guy and all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's, there's so many levels to just kind of the, the cult control that's going on that I'm, yeah. I'm horrified and also riveted at the same time. And I'll just add that I think the thing that the outside observer always wonders in these situations is how it goes from A to Z and yes. somewhere along the way, you no longer sense any of this is odd. It just becomes like, this is a healthy relationship. Yeah. And Inevitably, as Britt points out, anytime you watch where a person or a group of people in power, usually in some religious framework, begin to use manipulative tactics to, to try to get loyalty and obedience and to be able to have intimacy with those who are following the, the group, inevitably, like Britt said, it's 20 different facets that that kind of knock down your walls of how you would normally protect yourself and convince you that this is the person who's looking out for your good when no one else is. That's so well stated. Yeah, that's exactly it. So anyway, yeah, can continue. Um, well, there was a, the, um, there was also a substantial sexual assault component. Um, he, he had restless leg syndrome. So he was, so there's all, there's also a ton of detail. Like he had, he was married and left his wife um, and moved into the Zen Center um, at the end of that summer, which is also why he wanted to keep the relationship secret. I was just kind of like, I was 25, and I uh, 
I was like, I, I, th I think I said, I don't want you to leave your wife for me. And he's like, I'm not. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, but, I, but the, the secrecy of the relationship and how he got a divorce um, were all aspects of the story that mattered the most to the community when I came out and said, this is what happened. But it did take me a long time to kind of come to consciousness over that this had been wrong. Um, the uh, So I'm sorry about the um, disjointed aspect of the narrative, but he, he had restless leg syndrome and while he was living at the Zen Center, would wake up in the middle of the night and come into my room and there would be um, things happening that I uh, woke up in the middle of um, and had to confront him about it um, the next day or try to resist. Um, and then also it was, I, I also kind of repressed a lot of that. So that was a, a lot of good good work for therapy a few years later. <laughs> um, so the, the, the control aspect, I think the sexual assault piece is definitely the most difficult to heal. Um, but there was a financial piece, the roof over my head was always at stake. If I was kind of difficult in a way that he was un, unhappy with, um, he could threaten to kick me out um, and also take away my religious affiliation, basically. Um, so uh, the other, I think, important piece is that people who can be so abusive necessarily have to be trusted first. And that it's, you know, in relation to what you said, Bill, it's, it's um, those, those people earn our trust. You know, it's, it's not a stranger who shows up out of nowhere. It's a trusted mentor um, who, who suddenly twists their capacity and twists their ability to, to have power um, toward their own end. And it's like the, the boiling a frog metaphor. I don't know if you've all heard that. Yeah, I feel like that one, that one was a very helpful one coming up for me when I was starting to heal. But uh, as, the, as progressive as the abuse was, also um, we came out and said we were going to get married. And I think there was something that was so final about that to me, about walking through the door of marrying this man, this difficult mean, man who uh, presents one thing to one, some people and one thing to the other. Also, he was also very funny. So he was mean, but also very funny. This is one thing that I also wanna kind of emphasize um, is that it's very, it's really easy to uh, kind of otherize and see as monsters, the people who are abusive, but to see them as, as human is even harder. Um, and uh, as, as, you know, as, in my journey, having left the Zen Center for me to be able to say, oh, actually, he was very funny. There were ways that he was very kind too. Um, he was a spiritual leader who had a, a you know, a very um, dedicated following and people who really felt like they owed him their lives. Um, but I was, uh, I left him like three weeks after I married him. And then having to, that was like the first domino. So, there was an instance on our quote unquote honeymoon where he said something very rude to me. Um, and I said, wow, you really know how to put me down. And with that, he turned a hundred, like 180 away and walked away from me and left me like on the side of a street in the middle of nowhere in Canada. <laughs> um, and I, and something about that moment was like, 
the breaking point. And I realized, you know, I don't deserve this life. There, I don't need to sign up for this for the rest of my life. And so then the extraction process of we're going to tell the Sangha that we're not together. And then I'm going to step down as head of Zendo eventually. I'm going to move out of the Zen Center. And then uh, I'm going to take classes. Um, I took a class in psychology of mature spirituality. And I um, uh, read an essay by a Jungian um, named Damaris Ware. Uh, and it was uh, called When Good People Do Bad Things, um, How Spiritual Abuse Happens. And it felt like a textbook definition of my life. And uh, it there were also a number of kind of events that made it hard to be able to say this happened, it was abuse, because back in 2009, when this was, the Me Too movement had not happened yet. And um, there, I went to two different female therapists and I said, I think that, you know, this is, person's been abusive to me. And they're like, there are no victims here. You know, you're not a victim. <laughs> um, and and I think that that language about being a victim and, you know, I, I actually received some of this a little bit on the TikToks, Brett, that you can't give away your power. You're, no one gives away your power except you. Um, you can't have someone take your power from you. And for me to come to a place over many, many months of recognizing, you know, oh, wow, you know, the, the things that I'm feeling and experiencing uh, are showing to me that I've been treated with violence and that that's not something I brought on myself or deserved. And even though I, in the beginning, I definitely felt that way, but thank you therapy. So um, the wake up came actually during one of our meditation retreats where I was, um, we sit for 14 hours a day, we meditate for 14 hours a day. And in the Zen center where I practiced, the um, person managing the sitting would use something called a kyosaku, which is a stick that they kind of hit the fleshy parts of your shoulders with. And um, when I had asked not to be hit by that, even though I had been a monitor and had been using it, I got to um, not manage that retreat because I was there only part-time. And um, I had asked, please don't hit me because my shoulder, I have a shoulder problem. And when I felt the person coming behind me uh, with the Kiyosaku, I had this fight flight rage, like well up. And I, and I felt that rage, like I will fight you to the death if you hit me with that stick. And seeing that in, in a meditative state, I saw, oh, well, that is the product of having been abused. Yes, I can say that there are ways that people can take your power from you. There are ways that people can do unjust things and it's not your fault. And that began kind of like my waking up and being willing to talk to the community about it. Does the thing generally, again, if you don't have a shoulder problem, does the thing hurt? Does it sting? Yes, yes it does. Yes, it's and a very it's part emotional. of the acceptable part of the practice. Yes. Yeah, that's I think strange. there's. Um, I think that's one of the things that where there are a lot of kind of bodily signals that in in a normative context would be rendered painful, and because you're sitting in meditation, it's almost like um, it reformats your experience of pain, and kind of getting down into the source code, the nuts and bolts level of how a sensation turns into a feeling. So there's like a physical sensation that then gets like 
coded and messaged and understood as. Mm -hmm. And there's in the Buddhist uh, kind of philosophical things like Dhammapada, they go into de ex you know extensive detail about this. But um, I'm just in my head weighing. You know, I know like in like Catholic traditions, there's the idea that you flog yourself. You know, oh, yeah. and doing it to yourself, I guess that's your own choice within your religious framework. But to be in a spiritual practice where another human being whether they're healthy or unhealthy gets to pick when and where pain is inflicted on. Yes. I just, I never thought, I didn't think we were still doing that kind of stuff today, I guess. And we That's, are. Um, a, a very clear and beautiful critique. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. I saw so. one video where, you know, you're sitting outside and it's cold and they, you know, they put a cold blanket over you, like it's soaking wet. And you just oh. have to sit with it. And that's when I was like, well, this spiritual path is not for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, there's, a, there's a kind of a hardcore um, mm -hmm. aspect, I think, to Zen that uh, that extremism, I think, can be attractive to some people. Um, sometimes yeah. it aligns a little bit with machismo. Like, mm -hmm. how tough are you? How tough? How much mm -hmm. are you going to sit up all night and meditate, even though you've only gotten four hours of sleep? That mm -hmm. there's... Um, kind of a ascetic you know yes yes it's so interesting hearing your story because you're kind of out you've been isolated you're on this life raft you know you're you're getting married but your subconscious is kind of screaming at you during this time and then just something kind of hits it where it's like i, I can't do this anymore but it must have between that and getting the the language of this is spiritual abuse. This something has happened to me getting therapy. Was there a moment in between that where you were essentially drowning? Where like the life raft is gone because you're leaving, but you haven't quite put words yet to your experience. And just, can you talk a little bit about just kind of the bravery of that moment of stepping away before you even really had words to understand what was happening? Thank you for that. Um, I appreciate that. Um... I think that the having been so functional um, as a priest, as like a, a community leader who I, I was very um, cognizant of how I could be at times a projection screen for other people's needs. And, and I, I really, I think had part of enduring the abuse uh, and enduring that relationship meant that I was just really together. Like, ironically, I was like on it. I was so diligent. I didn't have space to be upset because I was just, let's do the next thing. And I didn't really fall apart and begin drowning um, until a year after I left. And and when I fell apart, it was a, a total, total, total destruction you know, really suicidal, just did not think I could, could um, uh, weather that storm. And then that's when, um, so the community response was less than ideal. And uh, as you might be able to imagine, um, I think there's a lot at stake for people, first of all, in being able to, to admit that someone uh, has been mistreated and that that person has been mistreated by a very trusted and, you know, cared for leader. And what that means about your religious beliefs. And so, you know, I love 
hearing the language about deconstructing religion that I've encountered on your TikTok page, Britt, and in through this podcast. Um, I think mine just kind of like had a, a de demolition, like bomb, whole thing just fell apart and I was really left with nothing. And maybe there's something I, on your page I saw earlier today about surviving nihilism. <laughs> um, but um, people helped me out of the hole. I was really, I had fallen down a pit and I couldn't claw my way out without help. Um, and that's the part that, that makes me emotional for how yeah. kind people were to me. Um, I went and lived at home with my parents. That was actually transformative. Um, but I think the kindness uh, and, and, you know, when people said to me like, oh, are you feeling dysregulated? Go meditate. I was like, oh, no, <laughs> do not tell me that. <laughs> um, so I had to abandon Buddhism altogether. And then I, I think the next step in in my healing, I went to um, Harvard Divinity School and got a master's degree in religion. Um, and it felt like my intellectual brain was coming back online and it was giving me a vocabulary and a language to talk about um, religious seeking. What What is it that people, why, why do we seek? Like, what is it that we need? Um, and also it gave me a language that was not Buddhist to discuss spiritual experience. And when I got there, um, I was, I had the intent of bridging the practitioner Buddhist community with the academic Buddhist community, because I felt like there needed to be more uh, cross-pollination. And um, when I got to, to uh, Harvard Divinity School, everyone was like, Buddhism is the best. You can't go wrong with Buddhism. And I was like, oh, I can't talk to you. <laughs> it was so triggering that I actually just turned toward um, uh, animals. Like there was a, a class on um, animals and religion. It was taking like a, a really close look at how animals figure into all of our human traditions, um, which to me felt very insightful and profound. And so I, I, I think um, I just needed to put it all down for a decade and who we are a decade later talking about it yeah and i wasn't sure if you had like a crash in there in between kind of leaving and getting words for what had happened um, but i didn't want to skip that part because there are many people who listen to this podcast and myself included where when you are really embedded into that religious tradition and it crashes for you it's an existential crash because yeah. it's attached to everything your identity your just every single part of who you are it's attached to it and so it's just this this true existential crash that we have to kind of look people helped me out of that space and i'm trying to help others out of that space because it's a real it's a real space where we lose people it's a scary space yeah and so i didn't want to skip that part um but yeah like other i have to like admit that like other christians who are deconstructing the kind of buddhism that is around kind of post post deconstruction americanism is 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 secular buddhism buddhism that's been really married with psychology buddhism that just doesn't have a lot of truth claims and it's really just um spicy psychology you know kind of buddhism and so it does seem like this ultimate safe place and so i remember going to thailand because i wanted to study buddhism more intensely 
And I, it, it's like so embarrassing now, but like I really was shocked when I got to Thailand and I realized that everyone was using, you know, kind of Buddha talismans and it was prosperity mm -hmm. gospel. It mm -hmm. was make a donation yeah. so you have good luck. Totally. And I was like, I was just, I was trying to escape the prosperity gospel and, and patriarchy of yeah. Christianity. And I found myself halfway around the world back in the same problems. And that sounds so naive to say, but it, it really was like, wait, it's all here. The prosperity gospel, the superstitions, the good luck and the bad luck. And the, um, and then there was even like when I was would try to talk to female monks, realizing that they had to do a lot more than the men in order to even be monks. And the men had all kinds, they were walking around and talking to people in ways that the females weren't. And I was there just really trying to, to understand Buddhism more and finding myself like feeling like, oh, it's the same problems. Yeah. And for whatever reason, that's not a part of our usual narrative about Buddhism in America because we, yeah. because we kind of cherry pick this kind of psychology Buddhism and think that it's all Buddhism. That's great. Yeah, totally agree. And, and so I wanted to ask you, um, is that after when I'm working with, you know, post-Christians, prayer seems like really, really icky, right? Oh, prayer yeah. is just like, I don't want to do it. It feels yucky. Um, but they want something, right? They want yeah. some way because it used to be a tool where they were at least having a conversation in their mind, whatever that was. And now that tool is damaged because of religious trauma. And so it takes some time to kind of find some ways back into some form of spirituality after these things have been damaged. And I'm very familiar with this with Mormons and Christians, but it was so interesting. I was like sucked into your TikTok when you were talking about this with meditation. Oh, yeah. And so I would love to hear more of, of just how, you know, you had to kind of set this aside for a while and then what things have you been able to kind of repurpose and bring back or what is meditation like for you? Or is that still an unsafe practice for you personally? So going to meditate with a group at a Zen center, is, it feels unsafe. I have made myself do that though. Oh, well, I guess it's like my own sadistic or exposure therapy desire to just return to the scene of the crime and to, to feel can I rehabilitate this? And ultimately the answer is no, um, I think for the structure um, and the devotional practice. Uh, but the, the thing about meditation is uh, I'd like to say it's its own teacher. And that is one of the teachings in Zen is that they say there are no, there are no true teachers of Zen because the wisdom of your own sensory experience is the teacher. And that I, I can't abandon that. That I, I feel like I can bring forward. Um, I also feel like there were significant mm, experiential changes that happened for me through meditation. Just a total, uh, I don't know if there was an MRI, if you could do an MRI of what my brain looked like back then, but I feel like the connectivity was really different. And then it took me a while to the, the depression, the huge depression that I went through, which, you know, multi-year rolling event. So for anyone out there, um, you know, it's it, it's not like it comes and goes and it's over, <laughs> but there's like the reverberating aftershocks of, of trauma. Um, that, that also has kind of reordered um, my experience and the way that I sense things. But how I meditate now, 
I sometimes I just feel the need to, and I go sit down. Um, other times I I just don't, and I don't I don't um, I don't fault myself for it. And it's just it's okay. I think the 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 wonderful thing is no longer feeling that I'm estranged from my own experience, because the trauma, and I I I would. I would uh, bet that there's an analogous feeling in being estranged from one's relationship with God after a traumatic experience in a, a different context. But the 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 the, um, the intimacy of the the safety then being violated, and that self estrangement, I'm it has taken time, but I don't feel that anymore. And when I had someone uh, tell me right when I got out, you know, how can I separate the warp from the weft of this? terrible thing that throw I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They were like time. And I was like, fuck you. <laughs> no, I want to figure it out now. Um, but life figures it out, I feel like. And I'm, you know, again grateful to all the people who've who've offered me a hand. Yeah. It, again, I'm not really asking a ton of questions. I'm just want to poke in and just kind of say it's it's really a shame that what I think are real spiritual tools, such as meditation, yeah. ends up being corrupted in a way that a human being gets traumatized or harmed in the midst of that tool being used or with that tool being part of the, the religious framing. And, and then the rest of your life, you have to pick and choose, or some people would choose never to go back to the tool itself. And, and rightfully so. I'm not saying that they should. I'm saying that it's a shame that abuse has all these far-reaching tentacles that we don't even consider and in this instance in that practice an actual tool then now has a negative connotation at times and one for their own well-being isn't able to use that tool when maybe in other parts of their life it would have been really useful but the the, the trigger the the uh, connection to something really harming is is there and so i don't know it just it just strikes me how far-reaching all of this is we never think of it that way abusers certainly don't think of it that way they, yeah. but the harm that's done to somebody not only does it travel with them through life but it's connected to memories it's connected to objects it's connected to practices and beliefs and thought processes and it really is horrific when you think about the full breadth and scope of it so then being on TikTok and you start telling your story and Bill was actually really good this week. He, he was trying to dig into other stories about what's happening in Buddhist centers and Zen centers and how this kind of happens in this particular, you know, tradition. Um, so, yeah. Um, I can talk. I, I can mention yeah, a few of those. Yeah. Will you, will you kind of bring that up? And I just yeah. want to get, get your sense, Caroline, of just kind of the bigger story here. Yeah, and you're telling your personal story. And it seems apparent to me that anytime there's a guru and the guru is taking under his wing, and I say his because it's almost always a man, yeah. right? Uh, takes under his wing, you know, 10 followers or 20 followers or 500 followers, inevitably one out of every whatever it is, 25 of those or something turns into something really unhealthy. And I was reading a, a big long story and actually multiple accounts of this, but Ido Shimano Roshi, oh, yeah. uh, New York Zen yeah. Study Society. 
And then I was on Wikipedia, and I mean, it lists a bunch of these folks. Uh, so, Sogyal Rinpoche, Chogyam mm -hmm. Trungpa Rinpoche, Seng Harashida, again, I'm not going to pronounce these names right, but Ido Taishamano, which is the one we just read, Kaiozan Joshu Sasaki, Taizan Mazumi. It's obviously a, a more widespread problem than simply your experience. Yeah. And Two of the questions I wrote down that I wanted to ask you, I want, maybe I can tie one in here, which is it seems as though maybe for often when people attach themselves to gurus, they're taught that the guru is has trans has transcended and they found mm -hmm. enlightenment. And hence you feel as a student of them that if you just follow the path they follow, if you just do the things they say you're going to have this great awakening as well. And, and I guess I'm wondering if maybe we need to change the perception around gurus in a way that all of us just innocently walk into any one of these relationships in terms of student teacher with a much healthier understanding of what a guru is and isn't. I guess maybe your thoughts on that in terms of how we define gurus and what they can be and what they're not and hence maybe people will feel uh, their inner warning system telling them that something's off here great yeah i i wish i had a concise and succinct answer for that and yeah. i'm i'm still working on that that's a life project <laughs> now yeah. um as far as an educational mission goes but i think it has to do with we know what you mentioned bell about seeking enlightenment there's a lot of kind of smokescreen language around enlightenment. And um, I think that ultimately my take on it is that enlightenment is more a verb than a noun, more a verb than a state of being that you can't just get a stamp. Oh, you're enlightened now. And because Zen teachers who've supposedly had these experiences that kind of break open their awareness in various ways, that they know they they would know that, but that that they would teach that to not be attached to the idea of enlightenment. But yet, there's something in the social structure that glorifies their attainment. It's the hierarchy that holds up. Oh, this person can do it. I can too. Follow them. Be you know not. There are some traditions that explicitly say surrender to the guru, but in Zen, it's not it's not so explicit but it's more like surrender to practice, but you show up so regularly in vulnerable, uh, a vulnerable state of seeking. Um, and the, the teacher is there to kind of confirm and acknowledge um, your quote unquote progress as you go. So the, the relationship with the teacher in the quote unquote quest for enlightenment is essential in a Zen framework. And I think that if we're gonna disrupt anything, I think we need to disrupt that. And I don't know how to do that. <laughs> um, and I also don't know if, you know, until getting on TikTok, I really had no interest in talking about any of this stuff. But there's something so uh, marvelous about TikTok as a community of people with whom suddenly you can have conversations um, that otherwise would be very hard to have. But TikTok makes it possible. Yeah.
So I, uh, I love the humility of that answer in the sense that, you know, when we talk about this in the Christian context, it's instead of enlightenment, there's usually more, the language is more saved or salvation, but it's a yeah. similar kind of like, there's a mentor there in our case in Mormonism, you'd be meeting with this person who would decide if you're worthy enough to enter temple and holy spaces. Um, and it's like this very intimate conversation where you're having to prove your worth and prove that you are spiritual enough to enter this space. Ooh. And so, you know, it, it's this similar problem of, of as humans, we do need mentors and we do want to hear from people who have wisdom about how to do life. But then can you ever set up a system where that's not abused? And that's where it gets really tricky really fast. That's the million dollar question. That's the question of can we yeah. do this without it becoming a, a, abusive? And is there a way, even with TikTok, is there is there a way we can maybe decentralize wisdom so that it's not so dependent on, on these kinds of power dynamics? Um, but then that has its own set of problems. Um, so I, I had two more questions that I had for you. One is, you I didn't write this on your paper, but you did a TikTok once about how um, just kind of the female aspect of, of this journey, um, which is going to be really interesting to a, a lot of our viewers. So for, for Christianity, kind of the vision of God and Jesus and what it likes, what it looks like to be spiritual, what it looks like to be mm. transcendent, just the very image of God itself is male. And so there is kind of missing in this, which is, I think, why we made Mary into a goddess, even though there was no really doctrinal reason for that. But we were just hungry for what does it look like to be enlightened as a female? What does it look like to be spiritual and still be feminine? And can you t can you speak a little bit to kind of how your feminism in and out has kind of changed as a part of this journey? Sure. I, I gave a talk once when I had just been ordained and someone in the audience asked me, um, what was it like for you being a woman getting ordained? Uh, and my answer at the time, deep in the abuse, in the closet relationship, my answer at the time was, I don't think I've ever any experienced anything different, different than the, my male colleagues, which <laughs> is just how shrouded it was to me in my own perception. Because um, in looking, you know, I feel that the, the Zen Center and the, the whole lineage is actually incredibly misogynistic. Um, there's, uh, I think that kind of deep bowing to a, to a guru that the, the stoic asceticism that, um, the kind of ego pounding, uh, difficulty of, of practice and the glorification of that can, can sometimes very much read toxic masculine and that, that it's almost like a new like channel for it, <laughs> for, you know, there's a one-upmanship, there's something called, trying to remember if it's called, I was just thinking about this the other day, Dharma Dialogues, where you're basically like doing uh, kind of uh, Dharma Zen sparring over who's more, basically who's more enlightened, which is ridiculous. Um, but it's, uh, there. there's um, precedent for it in the tradition, in the, in the, the, the written aspects of the tradition too. So how do women navigate this space you know, I think that there's, um, I think it's very defeminizing, whatever that, however we can qualify that term, it's hard to, hard to do so. Um, but there were aspects of, of my femaleness that were, 
uh, called into question by the teacher and uh, held up to me as shameful and to be um, extinguished, um, like clothing, uh, hair, um, makeup. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned this on a TikTok, but the, the, uh, my teacher, I once said, you know, this is in the privacy of the relationship. This is so defeminizing. He said, you know what? And I said, I wanted to grow my hair out just a little bit, just so it could be like a little bit longer than, and, and he was like, you know, all the Zen teachers who look feminine are not good Zen teachers. And the ones who, uh, our good Zen teachers don't look feminine because they are too busy to care. And that uh, I think is, is a, a total ignorance on his part over kind of the cultural situation in which this practice is, is nested. Um, yeah. I don't know how else to elaborate on that, Brett, but. Yeah. And so for you was growing out your hair kind of yeah. an empowering practice sure. of I can be spiritual and I can also be a woman and I can be feminine. Yeah. Yeah. Although I did have really short hair even until the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. I grew out my short hair during the pandemic too. <laughs> but no, that was so interesting to me. Um, and then for the future. So what does it look like moving forward to you? How, how public are you maybe going to be with your story and just what things are interesting to you? Just what does the future look like for you at this point? So I've been um, really uh, warmed, kind of um, affirmed by being able to say any of this on TikTok and have anyone care to respond. Um, so thank you. Um, I, I feel like the story, when I first came out to the community, I was like, this story is not my own. This is the community's story. And the community needs to figure out how to understand and manage it. Um, I, in retrospect, I, you know, should have been more and let myself be more in the driver's seat on that. Um, but uh, moving forward, I, I really want people, I, I want to, I've written, a, I've written a memoir that I feel like is is a little bit like a bit of a roller coaster ride where you get into the seat and it click 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 takes you up and then takes you on the on the ride of of going experiencing the um joys and the um marvelousness of Zen practice and then having it turn pretty dark and um not having the main character of the narrator know that but the reader knowing it. And I, and the, and I want to offer kind of the experience to other people to know that like a cult experience is not something that just happens to like the, um, like the kind of popular stereotype thing. Pe people who have problems get into cults that um, people can abuse their power in, in really significant ways. And the thing that it gets taken advantage of is, is practitioner's sincerity and wanting to do the path well and do it right. And that's, that's where in our vulnerability, we are, um, can be threatened and how to determine if someone in your life in a spiritual position is, is threatening that one, that one's harder to, to pin down, but to trust oneself 
um, uh, deeper than the doctrine maybe. And that's, or trust oneself, that is, that is the doctrine and isn't the teacher. I don't know how to put that. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's uh, the, the beauty of that to me is, is taking some of the shame out of it, right? Because you come out and you, you're trying to understand what's happened. And there is kind of this narrative that you have to be dumb and especially needy right. to be in a cult. And yeah. um, this is why for me, whenever I talk about Mormonism, something that has been a gift to my kind of inner child and inner adult is to not talk about it, try to not talk about it in a way that my previous self would feel shame. Yeah. Right. Because there were, I, I can remember the intense shame coming out of it. And I would listen to another woman say, I knew that something was wrong when my bishop asked me, you know, we have, we have garments, we have spirit, you know, clothing that we wear under our clothing and it's an underwear and it's very uncomfortable for women and you get yeast infections and it's a whole issue. Oh. And I remember other women saying like, I knew it was wrong that there was a man in power behind a closed door asking me about my underwear and having to explain, well, you know, I don't wear it on my period sometimes or whatever the conversation was. And the intense shame that I felt that I didn't even have that red flag, that I just walked in that conversation and had no red flags going on because I was so in wanting to be good. Yeah. wanting to do life right, wanting to yeah. be on the right path, whatever it was. And so I just love how you frame that in the sense of trying to talk about the problems, but decoupling mm. it from the shame and not shaming people for, you know, all of us getting wrapped up into things that um, maybe we look back and, and say, oops. Um, and so I, I, I love the I love that approach of can we talk about the issues and can we take away some of the shame because this could be any of us. This is all of us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I really I can't wait for the book. No, thanks. <laughs> Where can I um, hear more of your story, Brett? Because it's it gave me goosebumps to hear you say just that vignette. You know, I'd love yeah. to hear and read more. Um, yeah, I do a lot on, on the podcast. Um, Maybe I'll send you some that I've done on other people's podcasts where it kind of more concisely yes. tells my story. But a yeah. little bit of our background is, is that I was raised in the Mormon church and then, you know, was deconstructing, had that kind of moment of just existential brokenness. And oh. it was this, it was this guy over here who was the first person who told me, I don't think you're broken. I think you're growing. And he was one of the people who, kind of reached out a hand and we've been friends for a decade now trying to really talk about what happened to us. What were we, yeah. you know, we look back at, at Mormonism and, you know, Bill and I can poke fun about all the silly things and all the silly doctrines, but then we were also there trying to make sense of it. And so this pod, a lot of this podcast is us trying to understand um, you know, we talk about the bite model, we talk about cults, we talk about existential fears, we talk about religion, we talk about spirituality, we're trying to separate what's really going on here That's in right. this experience. And yeah. so our story is kind of embedded into this podcast. And anyway, Bill, how would you answer that? Um, when you're, I figured stuff out at maybe 30 years old, mm. that my faith system was probably bullshit. And, you know, I should have been 20 years old learning things about life that I didn't figure out until I was 30, 35, 40, because it was such a slow burn. You know, I'm 30 years old and I kind of figure out what, something's wrong here, but it's not until I'm 30, 
nine forty forty one where I'm excommunicated from my faith and I'm figuring out like how to drink as an adult as a forty year old. I'm figuring out conscious altering tools, not counting my recreational time as a teenager because I was a convert, as she said earlier. So I'm you know I'm doing mushrooms for the first time as a forty year old. I'm it's almost like you at forty years old have to kind of redo your twenties and figure yeah. out who you are. And a lot of time was taken from me. A lot of time was taken from Brit. A lot of time was taken from you. Um, I don't know, man. Just uh, unhealthy religions do so much harm, and they and they're all fighting for this right to keep doing it, right? Like religious freedom. Right. Yes. And, and yet, we ought to just stop and say, religions are doing some collectively. Religions are doing something unhealthy. Like again, not that all of them are doing it. Not that everything and even an unhealthy religion is bad. But there ought to be ways that religions aren't so sacred that we can't intervene and stop some of these processes from working the way they do. Yes. Yeah, nicely said. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so my last question for you, unless you and Bill, you might have one at the end here too, is just what do you recommend for people who are wanting to get into meditation? Because we, uh, Mormonism is... While there is Christian mysticism, Mormonism doesn't really have a contemplation mm. practice. It's really sure. missing. There are some yeah. people who have actually, like Thomas McConkie has gone and studied kind of Buddhism and is trying to develop something specifically for Mormons. But it, it is an empty place for a lot of people who are coming out of specifically Mormonism. Um, so is there anything that you would recommend for people who really want to... Um, practice that settling the dirt kind of settling which mormons are really busy people we just kind of keep that you know we just keep keep that dirt moving in the cup but we just don't think about it um but which keeps you know, us from getting to the real work sometimes oh 100 we're just very busy people right we're we're yeah. bees for a reason in yeah. in, our, in the state flag but um you know, but then if you're if you've deconstructed Mormonism, you're wary of gurus, you're wary of maybe spirituality in general, you're wary of getting sucked into because right when you leave Mormonism, everything is still kind of primed for a new prophet, a new religion, yeah, yeah. because all the scaffolding is still there. So just okay. any words for for someone who's wanting to get into contemplation but is a little bit scared of all of this. Yeah. I um I, I, I would just want people to turn back to their own resources um, and to get in touch with what it is that is the deepest question for them and what it is that they, um, that they, that they really need and want. And I think having, even articulating what that is, is hard and, and then trusting that there's nothing outside of us that is going to give us what we need. And I, I and I don't, I, I feel funny even saying that, <laughs> but um, in, I think the, um, the idea that someone else can give us something that we've already got it. And maybe that, sense of how, of what our self is needs to expand to know that we've already got it, but that there, that there's an inherent wisdom that uh, we can trust on our own and that just sitting still and 
getting in tune with one's own breath and listening to the crickets is uh, nothing more glorious. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know. Just I, not, I, yeah. not seeking for a new prophet. Just yeah. And, and that if there's teaching that resonates that, you know, that's great. How lovely. Mm. I think that it, it comes to getting really entrenched in the power structure. So there's a, a close friend of mine who was really one of the people that helped help me out of the hole, um, who was, you know, he was a priest as well as a priest. And then, you know, time passed, 10 years passed, and he's a Zen teacher. And he's been in his own sexual abuse scandal as a Zen teacher, as someone who fully knows what the pitfalls are. And he, and he, and he, uh, he did it. So I think, you know, just to, to, to be careful with, um, yeah, with, with teachers. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know no, yeah. So I it pulled, can be very safe for some people. Yeah. I pulled out of that. Look within, right? Yeah. Look to your inner wisdom, follow resonances, and be careful around new prophets and gurus. Which thank you, Red. Thank yeah, you. For I'm gonna that. yeah, I'm gonna pull those out um as as great advice. And then Bill, did you have any more? I, I wonder if part of the solution is to change the language so that gurus are seen as peers rather than yeah. as the master. Yeah. Like we all have life experience. We all have wisdom from something. We all have various degrees around various topics and subjects. And and maybe the idea is that we're all just human beings trying to, to learn from each other. And maybe the dynamic changing something, because I think the master teacher is yeah. prime for abuse. Yes. And if some way like, hey, we're peers, but I happen to have a little more life experience in this facet of life. And so I'm going to share what I know, but in no way should this dynamic be master student or I don't know. I, I see this so much and religions never really are accountable to it. Leaders, unless they're caught that do this are never really accountable to it. And we just keep as a, as a society making excuses and allowing another generation of young people, sometimes even kids, obviously getting, getting deeply harmed and abused and, I just think we could build a better system. So I don't, don't really have a question or something. Just I'm just frustrated that so many people incur so much unnecessary harm and trauma. I remember being a, I was in college, Bowling Green State University. I was going to be a teacher. And I just remember being in one of my classes. And I think it was a, a, a women's liberal arts class. It was something like that. It was a women's literature class or something I was in. And they were talking about how a third of women are sexually abused yeah. uh, most at the younger part of their life, either young adult or child. And I remember hearing that. And I just knew my childhood was safe and good. I had one brother and his childhood was safe and good. And to learn that as I was growing up about this world, I didn't quite understand what it was and how it worked. But when I learned that that many women incur serious harm and trauma, I was just I don't know, just bothered. We can do better. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's and it's hard too because because it's it's not like if if all of the masters and all of the gurus and all of the prophets were to die today, 
it's like our our sense of uncertainty and our inability to sit like you've learned how to sit with uncertainty and just sit with it until you can kind of sense its borders and watch it fade our it, it's like our inability to sit with uncertainty will just drive drive new profits tomorrow and so it's and so i i see so it's like there's issues in the Zen centers, there's issues, but then there was also tools there to help us deal with uncertainty so we don't create right. profits. And so it's 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 like what we do, Bill and I do on this podcast all the time is just recognize that there's there's deep issues and there's deep problems, but there's also tools here that are gonna help us to solve the problem. We've just gotta do some baby bathwater separating. And I yeah. think that's something that everybody has to do individually. Yeah. And how, how lovely to be able to have a conversation of, with other people about that very um, work. So mm. that's, uh, that's yeah, such a, such a great thing. It's something we do just because we enjoy it. Well, Caroline, we don't want to take any more of your time. And please, uh, if you're on TikTok, find her at Life After Zen. And two months ago, I didn't even know what TikTok was. I thought that's just where... Gen Z goes to dance and I wasn't interested in it. And I didn't care that TikTok was like, you know, in Congress and they're debating whether to get rid of it or not. I just couldn't have cared. And then I got on it and then I started finding just amazing stories like your story. And now I'm like deeply invested in wanting TikTok to survive because what would I do if I didn't get to hear your thoughts on all of this? That would be so sad to me now. But a couple months ago, I just thought TikTok was stupid. Yeah, me too. Actually, same. I, I overcame my my TikTok resistance, and and I uh, I'm I'm really into it. Yeah, I, I, I can't tell you how many people have sent me private messages saying I've been abused. Yeah, and uh, there and I'm like there. We need a, a conversation where we can support each other. And yeah. on that note, I am part of a support group for anyone who's been through. Um, kind of abuse in a Buddhist context. So I don't know if any of your listeners would would uh, need that resource, but that is a resource that exists. Okay. And, it, and I discovered it through these, um, these academics actually who were going to kind of uh, document all of the things that have gone on that long list, mm-hmm. Bill, that you were reading earlier today. Uh, it's, a, it's actually a very long list. And um, they're mm-hmm. trying to, kind of outline the contours of it and get it out into the public public knowledge. Yeah, and we yeah. got a couple of readers just saying, just thank you for sharing your story. And just from all of us, thank you for sharing your story. Yeah. And, and um, speaking to this, how we're gonna do this is through conversations like this. And so thank you so yeah. much. Thank you so much. High fives all around. <laughs> it's great to, great to see you both. Thanks for coming on today, Caroline. I, I really appreciate the, the value your voice adds to this to conversation. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for having me. Thank okay. Have a great day. And uh, Britt, um, enjoy your day as well. Do you want to hang yeah. around for a minute and chat? Uh, yeah, I got a couple minutes. So we'll say bye to our guest and uh, we'll we'll hopefully see her when she publishes her new book. We'll have her back on. <laughs> awesome. Have a great day, Caroline. Bye. All right. Here we go. Give me a second. Mm-hmm. We'll switch that and that. All right. So what do you think? <laughs> so, yeah, it's one of these moments where just a, just a good, innocent person who's been harmed by something outside of them 
decides one day to just go on TikTok and start conversating. And before you know it, she's got 3, 000, almost 3,000 followers. Uh, and little by little, she just reveals kind of more of her story and speaks her truth, which is that harm's being done and that there's still some value in these tools. And it's such a hard thing to do to be harmed by something to be speaking truth to that and then also speaking truth to the context in which that harm occurred and still giving some credit to what that gave you. Yeah. And I could see, so I knew her story cause I'd been following her on TikTok, and she kind of cuts it up into various parts. So I hadn't heard all of it, but I'd gotten most of it. And, um, and so I could see after a while, like, just cause I've been talking to you for so long, we've been friends for so long. I can kind of read you a little bit during these interviews and I could just see at some point you got a little heavy, like, Oh, like it, it weighs on you. And I could see that in you that like, why does this have to happen over and over? If I can just say something to that, I was thinking last night, I was going to ask you today when we got all done with this episode, when the next date would be open that I could kind of form a topic. And what I wanted to talk about was just you and I, just what little wisdom is between the two of us. Mm -hmm. If we were in charge of building a new world, Oh, what kind of things would we implement? For instance, I would I would have the public school system revamp it entirely, and school teachers would be paid significantly well. Um, therapists would be paid significantly well. Everybody would get a free therapy. Everyone gets access mm -hmm. to free therapy. Every mm -hmm. citizen in the United States automatically, by nature of being a citizen, has access to a free therapist whenever you need it. And you get multiple options. You don't just get the worst therapist handed to you because it's a government program, right? And then you revamp the school system so that kids learn things like how to manage feelings and and kind of the diff, deep conversations that nobody seems to want to do. Learn enthusiastic consent, for instance. Um, to teach kids in a way that when they grow up, if they were to find some sort of attraction to a religious system that they would build a spot abuse immediately. Yeah. Um, it feels as though we could really easy do 10 immediate things that would be just common sense that everyone would go like, yeah, it's probably a good idea. That'd be good. That'd be, I'd have to like, I'd have to really think about it. So we'd yeah. have to you yeah, five, do it in advance, but like, yeah, if I did five things that I could change, what would I change? Yeah. And that's such a good question because here's where like we got, I could see in her story that you get caught in a catch 22, which is, and this is, I feel like where we're stuck in humanity is that Zen Buddhism specifically has some of the best tools for sitting with uncertainty and accepting it, accepting what is right. Buddhism is all about like, we're just going to meet what is if they're suffering, if they're, you know, whatever it is, we're going to meet it. And here are the tools to do it. And that process helps you to not need profits, right? Because, because you've, right. you don't need someone to say, here is the perfect path for you, which we do because we're just so lost and uncertain. We can actually say, no, you probably don't know any more about what my life path than I do, then I'm not going to listen to that. And so what do we do when, like the abuse is in Zen Buddhism. There's all this messed up stuff. But then the tool to kind of like stop that, one of the tools, which is humans learning how to sit with uncertainty and, and death and all of these other things. 
that tool is also found in that place. And so like we're stuck because these religions have these tools and then there's always abuse and there's always issues. And so we can just, it just seems like we can never break out of it. And like, maybe we're just going to be stuck there as humanity. Like when I get pessimistic, it's like, we're never going to be able to get out of this because the next generation is born and they have a whole new thing. They have all of their feelings of existential fears and evolution tugging at them. And it takes so long to kind of do this process of understanding your own mind that we're just never going to be able to transcend what evolution has kind of created us to be, except maybe with AI, which would be interesting, which we will have an AI conversation coming up in a couple weeks too. Yeah, but, right. but I don't know, like I just get stuck with, with, you know, some of the, the tools were so great that that's what created religions around them in the first place. And then we're back in the same problems. Yeah, we're not fixing anything. The, the Whatever number of people were abused last year, about the same number of people are going to be abused this year. And we all have conversations. And those of us who are uh, healthy enough to want accountability in this arena, we're talking about it. We're uh, There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Just recently, we did a story. Uh, I did a story away from this podcast where I covered some really unhealthiness among LDS apologists within Mormonism, right? Like, you shine a light on it but everybody just keeps doing business as usual. And you catch a guy over there and he gets in trouble or you catch a guy over there and he gets in trouble, but there's five more rising up in their place next year. Um, yeah. It, it just, it doesn't go away. And, and then, it isn't going to go away until we do something much more serious, which is we from, it has to be at the government level, right? At the government level, somebody has to go, there's too much abuse. Religious freedom is protecting that. There has to be things we have to do. You know, abuse gets reported automatically. It's mandatory. Yeah. How hard is that? And we did see some other countries are doing that. Hey, you can't hide by behind religion for these kinds mm -hmm. of child abuse things. It's going to mm -hmm. be hard to do in America. It's going to be hard to do in America with with such a strong fundamentalist right wing that is so embedded into politics and religion and this really hyped up level of politics and religion. It's essentially a cult you know it is it is a cult um and there's a cult of the left too so i'm not picking on them specifically but they are more religious than the left is and so you know how do you make a move like that without civil war essentially you know what i mean i mean so uh, really the best thing that we can do and short of like, I'm the ruler of the universe. And this is the, you know, this is how we're going to run business now is, is hope that with enough conversation, um, it, it's almost like we're a collective thing. Right. And so as, so, you know, we are individuals, but we're, but there's also kind of, you know, Idahoans or Mormons or Utahns, or, you know, we can kind of act like one body when we're together and then, Put that all over the world sorry stay with me on this thought and we change through conversation and our kind of collective subconscious and we can and we can transcend things so for example most we we don't really do child sacrifices anymore we've had a lot of conversations we've had a lot of changes and that took a thousand years to do like it's, and that took no no, no thousands absurd. thousands of it's years for, for us to get rid of that and maybe one of the ways that we got rid of that is we just said 
that was Jesus and we're not going to do it anymore, right? Maybe he was the last sacrifice and it allowed us to outgrow that idea. But, but I mean, even someone like Richard Dawkins, he's like, I realize that this God problem is a problem and it will take centuries for us to outgrow some of these things. But the only thing that can help it forward is more conversation, more debates, put, you know, put these ideas against each other and let them battle out in real time in people's minds as they're listening. And maybe that really is the best thing that we can do is to talk about it enough that we start to outgrow some of these things because um, when you talk to children, they really don't want to be sacrificed to the God. They really don't, yeah. you know? And so maybe if we talk about it enough, it, it changes us and then we change the systems. Yeah. At the end of the day, you really have to be manipulated to be a you lamb. You really have to be manipulated to be to willingly be the scapegoat, right? And uh, yeah, you're. I think you're right. Conversation is certainly a huge part of it. It it just seems like we've been conversating again. I know the needle moves, but it moves so damn slow. Yeah, that we've been talking. You know, having these conversations from the '80s and '90s and you know 2000, 2010s. Here we are, 2023, and it feels in terms of stopping abuse by someone who um is seen as having some sort of magical outer authority uh, it just seems absurd that we should still yeah. be dealing with it and and we do that would be maybe one of my rules is like the one idea that i think it's time to outgrow this today like we we need to outgrow this idea some things like like god i think it's just is still going to take more time or um but one thing I think we can outgrow is when someone says, God told me to tell you, right? Whatever the thing is. Yeah, you can't do like, that. Like instantly as a society, we should say no. Like we have yeah. enough evidence. Like let's look at the list of all the people who said that. Let's yeah. look at what happened. We don't even have to bring in the conversation about whether or not God exists and if God talks to people. Let's even just leave that out. Let's just statistically look at the list of people who say, God told me to tell you, especially when it's that I can have sex with your wife. Like yeah. that one always gets thrown in there with cults. As soon as that move is made, I think we as humanity have to say, you're not allowed to make that move. We're not allowed yeah. to make that move anymore. That's one that would be on my list. We, we can't do that anymore. That's that's yeah. a problem. Dogma. Yeah, that's a problem yeah. too. But it's it goes back to our conversations that, you know, when we talked about Maslow next last week, it, it goes back to our conversations about these things have to be overcome and outgrown and not just rejected or else they pop up somewhere else, right? So it's like we have to have the conversation about it so we can so we can outgrow these things, not just move from one religion to another religion, which is kind of yeah. what we're doing in humanity right now, in America right now. I was even in prep for this. And by the way, in this conversation, I think all three of us stammered maybe more than normal. It's just such a hard topic. And there's no way to really quite poke at it to clear it up. But I was reading, I mean, there was uh, one of the articles I read in prep for this was the guru themselves, they came out, uh, they were supposed to be the reincarnation of somebody, you know, 
Buddhism sometimes does that with the Dalai Lama and stuff. But yeah. um, the guru themselves came out and put out a YouTube video, and and I didn't watch the video yet, but I was going to, where they said like, you know, I'm I'm currently you know the head of this tradition, I'm seen as this, but let me just tell you, my Buddhist masters molested me, my Mm. my these people you know harm me the one tried to kill me when i tried to stop them from doing these things to me and that's uh, that's when it goes to the next level that's when because because like our instant reaction is he's a pedophile he's an abuser um whatever the narrative is and he's evil and blah 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 and then when you realize that the perpetrators are victims that goes to a whole new level of nuance yeah and, and often that's the case that when you are harmed something unhealthy develops in you and you perpetuate that to the next generation right and we see that with sexual shame it's like yeah. it's like men men in power will you know help We'll get into these shame situations like she was talking about where she was unloading her shame and he was trying to fix it and then, you know, when you look at abuse with, with bishops and mission presidents, and it's like they do that too, but they also have their own sexual shame, right? And so yeah. it's it, eventually we just kind of have to talk about human nature more, general, more generally, yeah. like why do we do this? What's, what's going on here and not this kind of dichotomy of bad people are over here and we just have to remove them from power and everybody else is good over here. Um, because it's just more complicated than that, which is hard. And I think that's why this conversation got a little tricky at some points, because it's not easy to say like, well, there's the problem and there's the solution. It's like, this is human nature we're talking about. How do, how do we transcend this? Yeah. Stuff. Yep. I guess we just keep trying to move the needle a little bit at a time. Just keep, yeah. Keep doing your inner work and, and, changing the universe through because i do truly believe that when you when you change yourself and you you recognize the abuser in yourself you recognize and maybe not you know you're a pedophile well, i think but that's at fair least, right but, but at least fair look to say within every one and of us say, is abusing yeah like everyone has when we inside. and you've talked about this you've been more open with this than i am of like hey i used to really manipulate people around me for my own ego like and that's yeah. what this guy was doing right so you know, looking at that within really does change things and then conversations change things. And, and it seems so helpless with how many people are being abused, but like, that's where we got to start. Yep. All I'm, right. I'm all for that. Well, I, uh, I think these are important topics. I hope we cover stuff like this every now and then, uh, various forms of abuse happening in various forms of society and probably most strongly within religious framings yeah um, it was really interesting to hear it from from the buddhist perspective and yeah. and not just kind of our own backyard so that was really fascinating to me yeah, i was like it was i was horrified and and it was like one of those moments where like i didn't want this to have happened to her but it was so interesting to listen to. Like if that was a documentary, I would have watched the shit out of it because that was cult stuff on multiple levels. And it, to our audience, for the folks who are uh, coming out of Mormonism, it, it strikes me as so, again, her story is a very different system. The, the, the machinations by which the manipulation happened were certainly different. 
And yet I see from the time you are a little child, you are taught that it is perfectly okay to be brought into a room with a stranger, right? Even the primary age, we'd say eight-year-old. But in reality, the church tries to form a connection between the bishop, uh, whoever that person is holding the calling at the time, because it's the office that matters, the bishop in tiny little primary kids. Mm -hmm. And so the bishop comes into primary and goes, hi, I'm the bishop and you can mm -hmm. trust me. And um, mm -hmm. Mormonism has lay leaders. So it doesn't have the, uh, even the, even the very base level of protection, which is uh, a two week course for the leader and go like, Hey, don't do really unhealthy stuff. And here's what unhealthy stuff looks like. Mm -hmm. um, priesthood power, teaching women that, you can trust somebody who has had hands laid on their head and has received this magic invisible thing. Um, and, and so now a girl's at BYU and she meets up with the RM and she goes back to the room with him alone and any uh, inner voice going like, hey, something may not be safe here. She just ignores that because she's been taught all her life that those boundaries are okay. Yeah. Mormonism is constantly knocking down healthy boundaries and putting up unhealthy ones and telling you they're healthy. Yeah. To the point where I'm in a room with a man asking me about my underwear and I don't yeah. even have a red flag. You don't anymore. even know that that's a problem. Because I, how many Bishop interviews have I been in since I was a little girl? Yeah. You know, yeah. many. And you're taught to lie too. The, the idea that uh, touching yourself is bad. So you, again, I was a Bishop of a ward and I had one young man. He was, he was the best young man in our ward in terms of mm -hmm. self-awareness and wanting to do the right thing. He's the one who comes to me and goes, hey, Bishop, I've got this problem, right? And, and of course, I we could spend time talking about how I handled it. I think I handled it great, which was, you don't need to talk to me about this unless you feel mm -hmm. it is overwhelming you that you're missing school or not going to work. Mm -hmm. I said, it's a perfect normal part of child, you know, being a growing adolescent. You do you, unless you feel like it's a bother, you don't need to come see me. He never did again. But nobody, none of the other young men felt guilt right. and came to right. see me. They felt guilt, but they never felt guilt and came to see me. Right. Um, they hit it. And so Mormons are taught at an early age that if I'm doing something that the community is going to shame me for, I'm going to just pretend I'm not doing it. Mm -hmm. And so we're taught that dishonesty gets gets the A+. Mm -hmm. Honesty gets you more shame. Honesty gets you not taking the sacrament for two weeks. Dishonesty gets you continued praise. You continue to fit in. You continue to have the acceptance of your community. Yeah, it's like this kind of split personality that you get. It's, you know, yeah. the good you and the bad you and you're kind of even blind to the own to your own shadow because it's yeah. it's reinforced. But speaking of self-awareness, I have one last little tidbit and then Please. and then I'll hop off. I was about. listening to um to I think it was a TikTok from a from a psychologist who was talking about self-awareness and it was something like eight like between 85 and 95% of people are not self-aware almost 100% of people say that they're self-aware. And so they were trying to differentiate who are the real self-awareness unicorns. And there was mm. one pattern that they found for self-awareness unicorns. Um, and they would kind of just really dig in into how they look at themselves and how they talk to themselves and how they have conversations in their head. And the people who really had a high level of self-awareness could answer questions about themselves correctly, had, a, had an understanding of their shadow and their ego and their toxic traits and all of that, could, could voice those things. But the way they talk to themselves is what instead of why. And so if you are talking to yourself and you say, why do I do this? Why am I always ending up in this situation? Why are people 
why is my family blah 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 so if you're if so the statistic was if you in your inner self-talk say a lot of why questions about yourself and about others then um you're probably one of the people who are not the self-awareness unicorns, but the people who do have a good sense of self-awareness will say, what questions? What am I doing that is continuing to cause this result in my family? Mm. What, what could I change that could, um, what could I change in my life so that I could um, be better at this thing? And so uh, there was a shift there from, from why, why am I doing this? Because your brain will just give you an answer like if I say, why am I doing, like, why are you late? Your brain will fill in because everybody else in front of me was driving crazy. Like your brain just makes up whatever. And so we're finding that our brain is really bad about why questions about ourselves. And it'll just make up whatever makes you look good, essentially. But if you do a what question, what am I doing that is causing this? What am I doing that could be? What could I do that's better? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. If you do what questions, you're much more likely to get to the heart of the problem. Anyway. Do you feel like you're in one camp or the other? Uh, uh, Self-awareness. I'd have to really watch. I'd have to really watch my thoughts. I do feel like there's definitely still parts of my shadow that I don't understand, like things that I do that I don't, I truly don't understand what I'm doing or why I'm doing that or what I'm driven by. So I, I, I still think I'm an enigma to myself, but maybe that's like knowledge. Maybe saying that means that I am self-aware. <laughs> maybe saying that I'm not <laughs> means that I am just like people who are wise. The people who are the wisest are like, I don't know anything. <laughs> Yeah. So I don't know. I, there's still large parts of me that I don't understand about myself. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I'm a unicorn. Me either. I, I'd like to think I'm diving into my behavior constantly and thinking that way, but uh, I also think I'm asking some whys maybe when I should be asking some whats. So. Anyway, just just an interesting thing to watch in your self talk. See yeah. see how you address yourself when you're asking those questions. Yeah. But as always, yes, awareness isn't a journey. Awakening, as we say in the title, or Bill says in the title of this podcast, is is always a journey. You've never arrived, yeah. but but yeah. Uh, interesting little tidbit I heard. Okay, I'll let you get back to it, um, right. folks. If you if you're liking these conversations, again, don't hesitate. Go to almostawaken.org, click the donate button, send us a few bucks for everybody who does donate. Somebody just uh, signed up a day or two ago um, to to donate. It was was a decent amount per month and stuff. And I just really appreciate everybody who gives. It it means a lot. Uh, it's the only way we can do this work. I mean, we could do it for free, I guess, but it takes a ton of time and energy. You you put a lot into reaching out to get a guest and to putting the outlines together. Um, you're always sending me links to to read things and to prep for stuff. And uh, folks, you can reward Brittany Hartley for her hard work and for how much uh, intention and energy put, she puts into this uh, by being a donor to the program. And for those who do, we thank you very, very much and deeply appreciate you seeing value and giving uh, giving to uh, the podcast so that we yeah. can keep doing this. So 
Anyway, I, tr- I truly believe I truly believe that our brains rewire with conversation. And so these conversations are doing that for me and Bill in real time. And then if you're finding that, you know, this podcast is these conversations are helping your brain rewire things or put words to things um, that that has that has value. And it takes work into to structure conversations that do that. So yeah. any support that you can give so we can keep doing it because, we ha- you know, we have families, too. And I'd be honored, folks, if any of you saw value in, in this episode or any other. You know, I think of like our episode, Dangerous Ideas, which was, to me, really fun. Yeah, the Hero's Journey, which I thought was a really good one. Uh, Maslow's Hierarchy. Somebody just sat down with me for uh, a bite uh, a day or two ago and said they watched that and really enjoyed it. Um, so, folks, for if you, we'd be really honored if you shared an episode you really liked somewhere on Facebook or Twitter or some other place. Share it with a friend or a family member. But uh, appreciate all the work you put into this, Brit, and I'm excited to be back here next week. Yeah, appreciate you, Bill, and uh, see you next time. Okay, take it easy, everybody. Bye. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.